Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and or back to the Equitheory podcast. I am your host, Jill Therese, and this podcast is about all things ponies. Aren't we all students of the horse? I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. <laughs> but this episode is going to be part two in the Positive Reinforcement Writing Series. So originally, <laughs> we broke up episode one into what it is and this part, and then me and Kane had planned to just kind of wrap up the end of this episode and then there would only be two parts and then we would be answering listener questions in episode three but as luck would have it when you get two horse people talking and there's all the caveats and all the avenues to explore um it ended up being three hours this episode and I'm not going to do that to you guys for listenability and also I think episode three it's possible that it could be listened to as a standalone. This episode covers a lot of things about like, can you give treats while you're riding? Or what are the steps you take as far as training, vet checks, equipment? Um, and, you know, you need to have a horse that stands at the mounting block. We talked about that for a while. Goals for riding and how you meet those goals. Um, how you move, how you get speed, extension, high energy movements. Um, how do you ride correctly? And how do you get like you know, proper biomechanics out of the horse and yourself, you know, hind end engagement, inside leg to outside rein, that sort of thing. Um, common cues that Kane uses and, um, you know, just really everything positive reinforcement. How do you go for any length of time? And the most commonly asked questions about riding we address in this episode. In um, episode three in this little mini series, um, it'll be part two of the, or, oh my God, it'll be positive. Uh, <laughs> positive three part three of the positive reinforcement writing series and part four will be listener questions so after um this episode goes out um then next week we will um post the part that we had to cut off of this episode if that makes any sense um so i'm pretty much just leaving this as the half of the first set we did and then i'm going to upload the last little segment as part three it's i say last little segment it's probably about an hour and a half long so um you know you got some good some good content coming up soon but then after all three parts are up i'm gonna re-ask again on my instagram on either equitheory or jet equitheory or both and have you guys ask me if like if you have any questions after you've listened to these episodes um, and then we'll tackle those in the fourth episode which will conclude this series and uh, hopefully you will feel like you have a better grasp on riding with positive reinforcement and so yeah that's what this podcast is about I hope that it's somewhat informative because I get really frustrated when I listen to other trainers talk about getting a behavior and it seems very ambiguous and ethereal and it's not like a straight this is what I do. So hopefully this episode is a bit more like that. Obviously, this is what Kane does for a living. So I'm not expecting them to be able to just like give away everything they know and go exactly step by step. Um, because that is how we make living, you know. Um, and just because I choose to do that does not mean everybody does or that it's the wisest business decision, you know. Um, but um, I, I really am excited to have Kane on this episode. I think it's a really good talk and conversation. I hope that you guys feel similarly. 
Um, and be sure to let me know. And if, if any thoughts or questions come up, feel free to shoot them to the Equitheory Instagram or email, and I will get back to you. I can't promise Jet Equitheory <laughs> Instagram. That one is a bit difficult for me to get back to DMs. But, um, you know, if you have a question and you don't want to lose it or you're afraid you might miss the question post, go ahead and shoot it to me in DM, and uh, I will try to include it if I find it's applicable. We're also going to be doing another episode on problem horses in the near future. Um, I don't know when that'll be. I'll probably take a break um, with cane episodes uh, after this series so I can get to some of uh, the patron questions. I've got a lot of good ones lined up and I'm really excited to talk about them, but I don't have, <laughs> I can't squeeze it into a cane episode because holy shit, we have so much to talk about. Okay. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up this intro. Let's roll the music and get into this bad boy. Okay. I'm not wasting your time because you got, you got a long, long episode ahead of you. All right, let's go. Alrighty, guys, you know the drill. We have got to do the patron ad because Jill still has not found sponsors for the podcast. Uh, there's been a lot going on. Whatever. It's fine. Listen to the patron ad and then we'll get into it. Okay, three, two, one, go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So the last ad before we jump into the content is one where you can support me and the horses directly. If you're willing and able, check us out at Equitheory on your Patreon app or at patreon.com slash Equitheory. When you become a patron of the podcast, you can ask me questions that I'll answer on the podcast for just $5 a month. And at the $10 tier, you can receive merch and have access to live Q&A events, which means you get your questions answered in real time. And at the higher tiers, you have the option for phone call consults with me on air or privately, as well as access to online training with me, depending on your tier. Sounds like a lot of fun to me. <laughs> but lastly, you should know, should you decide to become a patron, you can cancel at any time or subscribe and unsubscribe as you please or as you're able. And if you can't support us through Patreon, no worries at all whatsoever. Listening alone is more than enough. I just want to say thank you to all the current and future patrons. Me and the ponies appreciate it endlessly. But anyway, I'm going to stop talking and we're going to get into the part where I talk about things that you're actually interested in. Okay, so actually getting to the writing portion now. When you start writing, when you're starting to think about entering all of the steps that it takes, what are those puzzle pieces that you need to have in place before you even go about getting on your horse? You don't have to necessarily break down each behavior that doesn't have to be this episode because we're <laughs> running out of time. Um, but what what do you do before. So I have some like things to consider written down. Um, like what training, uh, skills do you have in place in the horse's repertoire? What do you like? What are your protocols for vet checks, equipment fitting and things in that realm? 
Because there's a lot that goes into writing. I have such a simple answer for this. I tell (laughs) this to all my clients. When you want to take the next step, you have to immediately think before you even think about training it, before you think about performing it, you have to think, do I know how my horse is going to react to this? If you don't, then you've probably missed a step somewhere you need to go back. If you do, then you can start thinking about how you're going to present that training. And then, you know, with how you present it, then how your horse will continuously react. Only then, if you can answer all those questions and so perfectly predict your horse, then you can start training it. Um, We especially went through that with Uma because she is a deaf Mustang. She can't hear. So we had to cover all of our bases. Mm -hmm. Nova as well. Nova being as reactive and sensitive as he was, if I skipped a step or didn't think of a step, that's my fault and I am guaranteed going to get heavily injured for it. (laughs) I'm going to pay that price. Um, Yeah, and I think that's that's actually... That's my quick answer to that is predict your horse know your horse you have to answer every single question you have to fill every single hole right and I think that that is a beautifully simple yet and massively complex answer (laughs) because it, it encompasses everything if you don't know how your horse is going to react to a certain girth then I mean you don't need to be riding <laughs> and-, yeah, and by those reactions I mean you need to be avoiding fireworks I didn't have a single firework with Nova not a single one because I was I took so I was so slow I was mm-hmm. so slow I it took me a year to get him to where he is now he's been started under saddle for a little over a year now it took me two months to to even sit on him, you know, right. like be slow, be really, really meticulous. And I think that that's very reminiscent of um, Mac, my retired racehorse project that ended up not going. I ended up pulling him from that competition because I didn't know. I was like, I, he's going to be, well, actually I did know, <laughs> and <laughs> but I didn't know how to get there because I was like, there are so many pieces to this. He's going to be so overwhelmed. He will not be ready in nine months, you know, and we were like six months out from the competition. And I was like, I am not even riding him yet. We had so much groundwork to do that it it just wasn't even within our wheelhouse. And also, I'm still very new to this in the grand scheme of things. So um, I've not had all the experience that I would need to be able to go at a quick rate. And it's also entirely dependent on the horse as well. And those two things, (laughs) it might make it go slower being inexperienced as well as having a horse that is uh has a lot of baggage and um some things that need to be covered so i would definitely say um from my perspective the things to do before you go to get on would be to have your horse vet checked very common issues are ulcers and kissing spine they are rampant in the horse world and the research that i have done on both of those things it seems that most horses have them though kissing spine doesn't always create pain but that's another episode um But uh, making sure that you're not going to be fighting against any pain issues because you will not be able to train through pain. In the example with me and Zoe, I tried to counter condition my leg and it didn't work because she was in pain. It wasn't my training was bad. It was because I I couldn't be more reinforcing than the pain, nor do I want to be. I don't want her to have to work through things that hurt. I want her to feel good and be physically capable of doing what I'm asking her. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, on that topic equipment comes into play as well um if you have a girthy horse you need to either change your girth find what girth your horse likes um figure out what's bothering them make sure they're seen by a chiropractor or a physio 
make sure you've checked for ulcers, things like that, just so you're setting yourself up for success and you're not trying to work against discomfort because if the horse isn't comfortable, it's not going to be a pleasant experience for them. And riding is just as much about the horse as it is about the rider. Um, you have a saddle that's perfectly fitted to you or that was convenient for you to buy. And then, I mean, does your horse pay the price? Let's hope not. <laughs> Those are really important well, things to consider. And on that note, too, on the comfort is, you know, happiness is just as important as well. Um, mm -hmm. I really, most of my first experiences, again, were just with Lily. Um, Lily's very introverted and Lily... Most of the time, if she's express, expressing an emotion, it's anger. Um, so she's really, she doesn't have a wide variety of emotions to the naked eye or to outsiders. Um, but Nova really made me appreciate that and how much happiness plays a role in it. Because he, when he made that transition into like shut down and shut off and wanting nothing to do with humans to like, oh my God, everything is fun. Everything was fun. And it was really obvious when he wasn't enjoying something. And then it was like, why? am I teaching this if he's not enjoying this or how can I teach this in a way that he does enjoy it everything was a game with him and it really paid off um but also you know to make this this answer brief um, I only have one more note on my draft um also the horse's physical attributes and limitations mm. um Good I have point. to consider that a lot especially if I have goals for that horse or plans for that horse um confirmation plays a really big part so nova's hind legs are i swear a foot too long for his body um, <laughs> he also has a very long back and neck and very low set forelocks um i knew because of that he would not be fit for jumping fetlocks fet sorry thank you <laughs> i just caught I, that I, wrote... <laughs> I was like that doesn't sound right for some reason <laughs> <laughs> i wrote four fetlocks okay so his his front fetlocks yeah um because of that, I knew he wouldn't be fit for jumping. Um, but also, he just straight up said, no, thank you. I don't want to jump. It's not for me. Yeah. Um, so because of his confirmation, his training focuses on sitting back and slowing down and keeping those ridiculously long hind legs underneath him <laughs> and rhythm and emphasis on impulsion and lift and collection, you know, things that are going to help the weaknesses in his body. Right. In contrast, I have um, a quarter horse mare who's very large body. Her name is Snowy. Um, she has a long body. Like I said, she has a very large body, but she also has heavily scarred legs. Um, she is a rescue. Uh, so movement is difficult for her. So we do just very short bursts. Mm -hmm. um, if I were to really focus on movement with her and her training, then that's just going to be difficult for everything. It's going to be physically difficult and mentally difficult. And it's probably just going to bring up PTSD or even just bring out pain um, yeah. with how scarred her legs are. So short bursts, you know, think about your horse's confirmation, what your horse enjoys and take it to heart. Yeah. And that, that reminds me, um, what you said about Nova makes me really think about Zoe's Hawks. She gave us so, so many indications that something about the way we were teaching her to move was problematic. Um, when she raced, she curbed both of her Hawks, meaning, um, oh God, I forget the name of the tendon. It's one of the tendons on the outside of the hawk, like nearest the very back of her. And um, she curbed both of them, which means essentially kind of like bowed it. And um, then she did it again on, uh, I think, her right hind. And so 
one might say her hawks are not necessarily her strongest conformational attribute. She also has very long upright hind legs and she's over at the knee in the front and has a very short back. So that puts a lot of strain on her hind end. And if she isn't uh, reaching over her back and engaging her hind end in a balanced way, then uh, we're putting unnecessary strain on her. So I think it's really important, like you said, to modify the way you're training and your goals and expectations to what your horse can physically do. If you're seeing a recurrent injury like Zoe and her hawks, they've been injected recently as well um, because her she was starting to become mildly arthritic in them because and she's nine she's a nine-year-old <laughs> like mm-hmm. she's, she's younger than all my horses <laughs> yeah and she is nearly arthritic in her hawks because of poor training and not teaching her how to use them correctly so if she's inverted and she's not engaging her hind end she's putting a lot of unnecessary stress on those tendons by having her feet out behind her essentially um mm-hmm. and not tracking up So, which you would think it would be the reverse, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) carrying herself balanced in the way that her body is designed, then that would make it better, but she was never taught how, and it's not necessarily an intuitive process to the horse, um, due to appropriate, you know, training can override that and, um, pain, uh, and scarring tension, all of those things in the fascia can also, um, tell the body that it's doing something (laughs) that, um, is right when it's not, um but that's a very convoluted way of saying that. But all that to say, if you're seeing a recurrent issue, it's probably time to um, reevaluate what's going on uh, before proceeding. I don't know if that made any sense at all, but it's not. No, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So next question here is in order to ride, you have to get on. <laughs> so which requires a horse that'll stand at the mounting block. So how do you train mounting? And um, have you encountered horses that refuse to stand at the mounting block? And what do you do? Okay. Let's be honest. I'm really tiny and I'm very <laughs> short. Um, I'm five feet tall and I you know, I work with Arabs, they're on the smaller side, but I get plenty of larger horses and my boss's horses are all gigantic warblets. Right. Um, but to the point, if I'm riding a horse for the first time, I want to be in a saddle that fits me. Usually that's my dressage saddle because it's secure and I prefer a long leg. Um, or actually most often I use my Western saddle, um, because I want to mount from the ground, especially if it is a nervous, reactive, or just started horse. Wildly Um, controversial opinion, especially from somebody who has an injured back horse. I was going to say next is don't jump down my throat. I am very aware of how um, dangerous and um, whatever word I'm looking for, but bad it is to mount from the ground. But here's my reasoning. I can put my foot in the stirrup and start with just that. You know, how does the horse react to just the foot in the stirrup? Um, I can progress that to bouncing up and down and then bouncing with a little bit of weight in that stirrup and then pushing up because I am, I'm pretty flexible and I'm pretty agile. So mounting from the ground is very simple and easy for me. And, you know, again, I'm really small. I don't weigh as much. Right. I was going to say. can be bad for your horse's back. Yeah. I was going to say that would not, I don't think that would work for me because I'm 5'8". And though (laughs) flexible and I can get on just about anything from the ground, um, it requires a lot of pull on their backs. And um, one advantage I see to using a mounting block, especially, and it has been my plan, and I'm incorporating it in very sneaky ways that they don't notice, um, is sometimes I'll work with our horses uh, while I'm sitting on the fence so they get used to me being above them. And then that's not a scary thing anymore. Um, But 
I, it just for me, I'm like, I'm so large and tall, I will pull over the saddle. And especially I'm particularly sensitive to back issues, of course, because of the <laughs> kissing spine thing. But no, you're right. Because even me, I'm it's still 100 pounds and it's still 100 pounds coming up all the way from the ground. Right. Um, but the reason for that being is they can feel me from the ground up. And like I said, I, yeah. I always do this with nervous, reactive, just started horses. If the horse has already started or calmer, then, you know, that's a different story. I'm probably going to use a mounting block. Mm -hmm. But with my line of work, this is safety and that's what has to be Which most seems important. So, safety it seems so counterintuitive to me. That's so interesting that that works better. But I can see how that would make a lot of sense because when you are on one side and you're pulling the saddle over, that's a lot of movement up on the horse's back that almost mimics you being on their backs. And then mm -hmm. they get used to that, notice it's not a bad thing. And also I'm assuming this isn't something that you do long-term um, yeah, all exactly. the time. So you fade it out. So um potentially mitigating because i don't think if you mount from the ground like eight times you're going to damage the horse's back you might um but yeah. i would venture to say probably not if you do it for the duration of the time that you ride the horse over many years yes <laughs> <laughs> no definitely you you have to fade it out but that's also what i mean by you know if, that, if it's a lot of movement it's a lot of weight so yeah, that's that makes what sense. i mean by it has to start with how the horse just reacts to the foot in the stirrup because um, then you know it progresses all the way up to me having one foot in the stirrup and completely standing on one side of the saddle I'll even for some horses ask for a walk but with just myself on one side of the saddle before even swinging my leg over um, yeah but even just the standing on the saddle I'll do it multiple times before ever thinking of swinging right. my leg over and again that um, goes back always, to like, pat and pet on the other side dangle my legs swing it swish it like make a little jiggle and it's like I said before is you have to cover all your bases mm -hmm. you have to fill yes. all your holes that's what I was about to say yeah <laughs> is that because I mean that would not I mean in the traditional sense I know a lot of people um particularly on TikTok for some reason I'm so glad I deleted that <laughs> app I hated seeing it um but people would break in young horses by starting there and th I think it is really really important to caveat your explanation with saying that you prep the horses all the way up into this yes. point just like you did with teaching something as simple as moving off of quote unquote, leg pressure, um, uh -huh. you teach that cue first. So the horse is well prepared. He knows what to expect. He knows what's going to come. And so none of this is a, it should never be a surprise. You should never get on a horse if you don't know if they're going to buck or not. <laughs> of course, yeah, there's I'm always the possibility that, you know, I dangle my leg and the horse reacts to it. And so I just keep dangling my leg to get him used to it. That's not what I want. If I dangle my leg and the horse reacts, I have to go back to the right. Step. And that is the difference. And I'm glad I'm glad you clarified that because I was getting a little nervous. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I wasn't expecting you to <laughs> say no, that. Actually, the most important thing that I've ever learned was feel their right side. Um, we do everything on the left side. You know, we can yeah. trace it all the way back to when we first started riding horses. We kept our swords on our left hip because most people yep. were right-handed. So mm -hmm. that's why you mount from the left side. So most people don't that, know that. <laughs> a lot of horses are not familiar with people handling their right side. Nova, especially, again, I can't even emphasize how reactive and sensitive he was. He literally wouldn't let you go to his Zoe's right side. Zoe's very much like that, it. too. Yeah, Zoe's like that, too. I, I noticed that when I was working with her um 
on Wednesday was that I just, for some reason, like I, I was training her to pick up her foot on the left side. And then when I went to the right side, she kept blocking me with her head. And, um, so I had to go back a step because I was like, there's a reason she's blocking me. She's not comfortable. She doesn't understand something. So instead of just pushing the issue and waiting her out until she stopped doing it. I went back a step and reinforced her for standing still and then me going a little wider and a little wider and then a little further back and a little further back until I could walk all the way around her both directions. And we've done this before, but, you know, in having some time off, she needed a refresher. But I think that's the very important difference (laughs) that you, when something starts going wrong, you don't just go, okay, deal with it, horse. Uh, Get over it. It's not scary. You're like, okay, something isn't making sense to you. Let's find the hole and fill it so then we have a yeah, solid if, foundation if your horse is going to flinch away from you touching his right side then don't even think about swinging your leg over right um, and even in that way too i mounted nova from the right side almost a hundred percent i almost never mounted from the left side because of his reactions right and i was going to say earlier when we were talking about mounting from the ground um and then I was going to mention mounting from both sides to balance out the pull a little bit, Um, but I was like, nobody does that anyway, and I nixed it, and I should have said it now because that makes a lot of sense. You, Every behavior that you train on one side, you should train on the other side. People that have started training their horses' manners or target training, you find this a lot that – when you train it on one side, you're like, okay, they've got it. Let me switch sides. And then they're like, what are we doing? (laughs) And they're like, I'm supposed to turn my head to the left. You're in the left now. I'm doing the right behavior. Uh, Why isn't this working? But you have to teach it on both sides so that it makes sense to the horse and they're comfortable with it on both sides. I think that's, that's a really good point. Um, Well, and then for the question, what do you do if your horse keeps moving away from, from the block? Um, I actually teach that uh my horses know that if they move away it's a recognition of no or mm-hmm. i'm not ready um it's the same if they return to the block after i've mounted them or if they return to the gate they want me to dismount so i do um they don't necessarily get a treat from it but they do get me dismounting and a lot of times just ending the session you know it's something that they asked and if they're not ready then they're not ready if the horse is adamantly returning to the block or moving away from the block you need to think about other things and you know most of the time that means don't ride do other groundwork and do other things that will help that because obviously riding is too much of a stress yeah Um, you can try moving the block to a different area but i usually would just again go back to groundwork move, work on more forward movements and addressing other underlying anxieties you know do things mm-hmm. that have absolutely nothing to do with that yeah and additionally consider why your horse doesn't want you on your back uh, yes. from your training perspective of course but also is there something going on and that's something i wish i had started with zoe because she very clearly though i probably would not have <laughs> recognized it because i would have written a narrative um but um, taught her to give me a cue to dismount. I just did a, a webinar watching fair horsemanship and, um, she discussed a lot about, um, riding. It was called riding with the clicker and positive reinforcement, um, which prompted <laughs> me to reach out to you to do this. Um, but she talked about a cue very similar, um, but something that the horses never do. So it's very hard to get confused. Um, she would have the horse turn around and touch her foot by like holding a target stick near her foot. And then they would bump her foot and then click and treat for that. But 
she would click, dismount, and then treat, and then do that over and over again so that the horse learned that that, resu- that touching her boot resulted in her getting off, and then they got a treat, of course, but then, you know, if that never came up, then when the horse is riding and it's being reinforced for other behaviors, if it turns around and touches her boot, she gets off. The horse asked her to get off very clearly. It's not a mistake, like you know, maybe drifting to the mounting block, you could be like, eh, well, is it drifting? Is it, does he want me off? Like, um, so I think that that was a really clear thing, but I think that there is an important conversation to have here. Cause I can feel a lot of people's stomachs twisting on the inside at the idea <laughs> of dismounting when their horse says no, because a lot of people's concern and mine too, when I first started this was, well, if I allow my horse to say no, how will I ever ride? And my initial reaction now to that is, why are you riding in a way that your horse never wants to do anything? And that, and it's just power. If your horse says no and you're offended by it, that is a you problem. Yeah, I agree. And to me, it would say now, okay, something's wrong. Either the horse is in pain, it's uncomfortable, the environment is scary, it's anxious, I need to go back a step. I need to figure out what's going on here and isolate some variables so I can see what is actually going on. Wouldn't it be a dream if they could just tell us? Um, But in many cases, it's easier to just be like, "Mm, that was an accident. (laughs) You know, uh, big whoop if your horse doesn't want to ride, you know, riding isn't everything, especially with plus R, you're quickly going to figure that out. There's a lot of things that are still fun about horses and owning a horse is not about riding it. Yeah, and I definitely fell down that rabbit hole. And that's not to say that um, everyone who starts with positive reinforcement will do that as well. But I mean, Zoe had her colic surgery in um, 2018. And she was supposed to be out for I think six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And I've ridden maybe five times in the past two years, because there was so much else to work on. And I I was enjoying it. And the only reason I yeah, and and I didn't. I never ever. Even when I started positive reinforcement, and I like dove head first, I was like, I will never be content not riding ever. Yeah, and, I thought the same thing. And it's it's just not. There's so much more to appreciate and have fun with and work critically. And you can still be a disciplinarian, like militant. I want to train things and do it on the ground and have fun and enjoy it without such, um, you know, rigidity. And that's not to speak against you know, traditional training or competition mindset, but you can still take that competitive edge to working on the ground and using positive reinforcement and really working your brain and your horse's brain in a way that is fun and enjoyable for both of you. I agree that it's totally, I mean, most of the time we spend with our horses is not on their backs. 90% of the time for most people, I mean, some people, I guess they don't, they only ride. But I mean, I would say for the majority of us that are not super rich and have grooms to hand our horses off to, it's it's spent on the ground grooming and cleaning their stalls and spending time with them um, and a lot of groundwork. And that is really undervalued in the traditional world. I know um, in dressage particularly, it seems to be a bigger deal, but in eventing, groundwork was lunging. <laughs> well, and that Just... goes right back to like how I said 
my ultimate personal goals are to ride with as little as few tools as possible and so in that same light I just love groundwork I could do groundwork all day every day with all of my horses Mm -hmm. because I don't need a lunge line I don't need a whip I just recently taught Nova his perfect collected impulsive walk to canter transitions without anything but my voice it is so exciting and liberating and just awesome and I mean like the whole time I'm filming myself um like I and when I review the footage, it's just so starkly different than the footage of me riding. Like, I mean, you guys listening can go back and watch my older videos of me riding. There is almost never a smile on my face. And it's because I am thinking so hard about the things that are going wrong and how I can fix them and make them look pretty and nice. Whereas when I'm on the ground with Zoe working with positive reinforcement, I am laughing my ass off the entire time because she just she's so creative and she is so willing to learn. And it's just it's a blast for both of us, even though it doesn't look like much most of the time. (laughs) It's, it's so much. And I think just to get back to the point, there's so much you can do outside of riding. And if your horse is saying no, maybe it is time to take a look at a few different things and just reevaluate what's going on. I mean, of course, consider pain, then consider the training, make sure it's clear, you're reinforcing often enough, you know what you're doing, your horse is equipped to handle the questions that and um, I guess, um, like, behavioral expectations you're asking. And, um, you know, be sure that everything is going well and that the horse is comfortable and confident. If the horse lacks comfortability and confidence, he is not going to willingly ride. But if he has those things in place, you will have a yes horse all day, every day. And then you will realize that maybe you did not understand what you were bargaining for because now you cannot walk up to your horse without them demanding you work with them because they enjoy it so much. And then you feel bad every time you have to leave the farm and drive past them or walk out your front door because they just whinny at you and you want to work with them, but you can't because you have to go get food. Well, and that goes right into our next question. Like, what are your goals for riding and how do you go about achieving them? I I mean, I'm sure you agree with this heavily, but Mm -hmm. like, that's exactly it is to have fun. I love groundwork. I can do groundwork every day. Um, I love voice commands. I like I've said already twice is I want to just do everything off voice commands and just communication and just it's like I said, it looks boring and invisible sometimes, but that's what it is. And it's fun. Yeah. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times growing up, I was taught that, um, you know, your cues are supposed to look invisible. And I think positive reinforcement is really effective at that. And to your point about writing being fun, I think that there is this phenomenon that happens uh, for a lot, if not nearly all equestrians, we start out riding at least most of us, because we are obsessed with horses. We love them. All we can think about, we draw them, we pretend to be them in our younger years, and we just (laughs) beg our parents until they're ready to pull their hair out to let us ride. And then when we do, we start riding and we love it and we have so much fun. I remember when I first started riding, I refused to put a saddle on my 22-year-old quarter horse, Bingo Bug Fuzz, because I had so much fun riding bareback. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to ride bareback and do nothing else. I was and then, the same. Yeah. It was just yeah, so exciting. Yeah. And then I moved to a an eventing barn. They made me put a saddle on. Was not happy about that. They told me I needed to <laughs> kick him and spur him and whip him when he wouldn't get his right lead because he was being obstinate, which a 22-year-old quarter horse being obstinate, right, he's arthritic is the problem. And um, like, and I, I never wanted to do those things. Those rides made me sick. But gradually, you start to become 
okay with it and you start to justify it in your mind because it must be done. A, you're being yelled at from a superior on the ground who knows more than you and then you start to invalidate your own intuition and you're like, well, they must be right. I don't know why I'm being such a pansy about this. And like, I just, I need to do it. You know, this is how you train horses. There has to be discipline or the horse will run all over you. And then you start adopting that mindset. You go from a child that loved the animal and was, you know, resistant to even brushing the horse hard because you didn't want to hurt them to someone who is discussing training in a way that, you know, puts down the horse that they're something to, um, you know, fight against that. Uh, oh, well, you know, if you if you don't correct that behavior, it's just going to get worse. And, you know, if you give the horse an inch, it'll take a mile. You must be the leader, blah, blah, blah. All of this. I did a whole series on dominance. But it's I really think that that is an important facet of all of this is that, you know, if your goal is to enjoy your horse and have fun, you have to let go of some of those old ideologies that, you know, you get indoctrinated into. And that's not because I'm a conspiracy theorist and I'm like, well, in the traditional world, they're trying to brainwash you. But to some degree, it is a little bit because that's not how you started out. That's not what felt right to you. But you had to adjust how you felt in order to get the things you wanted. And you and I are suggesting that there is another way to get the things that you want without having to do those things um, if they make you uncomfortable or ever did at one point. And maybe you would like to do something else. Yeah, be childish, ride bareback, have fun, enjoy your horse. <laughs> yes, as long as your horse isn't Zoe and hates bareback because her back hurts. <laughs> okay, um, sorry, i just so preachy today, apparently. <laughs> I have a lot to say, riding is a hot topic, but we're trying to burn through these. This is going to be a long episode, I might have to actually break it up, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, okay, so, how do you get moving? <laughs> You're on the okay. horse, you've done all of that. How on earth do you move? <laughs> All right. With Arabs, you know, I have an abundance of them. Speed, energy, and engagement, it's rarely a problem. Yeah. But, you know, I get it. I work with plenty of horses where it is a problem. Um, even sometimes with speed being so eager, it can create a problem. Um but I've also had horses who were very just overall reluctant to move forward to even take that step. That's Bella and Jack and Luke and Gulliver mm. and Uma. But most of them also had different solutions. So Bella, she's my oldest Arab. She's about 20. She had severe arena anxiety. Any forward movement was terrifying. Um, so that was just a matter of being brave and helping her be brave and make nothing of it. It's just a step forward. And I actually ended up just taking all of her tack away. Um, half the time I wasn't even sitting on her. That actually was the big thing though, taking her tack away and just letting her be free. Then yeah, she can walk from one cone to another cone. Right. Um, Jack and Luke, Jack was the core from a, a few years ago. And Luke is my off the track thoroughbred. Uh, for them, it was about baggage. Uh, so for them, I had to make forward movements fun and do it with them and add these fun little cues like voice yeah, commands are I think super that's the fun key. for most horses yeah and I think that's the key and like I was saying earlier with Zoe her, the leg is such a problematic cue for her applying pressure to get her to go forward because she is so reactive off my leg that mm. I would much rather train a Zoe trot <laughs> or a yeah. Zoe trot than um applying leg pressure and that like you said there are many different solutions to the same you know issue or training behavior um but 
I, I really think that there's, there's a lot more nuance than I think, uh, you can have in, uh, the negative reinforcement world. Um, and I think you get a lot more options with positive reinforcement, not to put down negative reinforcement, but typically moving forward is you might cluck first. If the horse doesn't move, you apply your leg. And if they don't move, you apply your leg harder. If they don't move, you might spur. If they don't move, you whip. And until the horse goes forward, you increase pressure. And it might not happen, you know, to that extreme every time. But eventually the horse starts to go forward off of the voice cue because they're trying to avoid the escalation of pressure. And that is what happened with Zoe. And, you know, her being who she is, <laughs> that that created a lot of anxiety. It doesn't happen for every horse. Sometimes you end up with the shutdown horses like you were talking about. Um, but I, th- I think I pretty much agree with you that I would – likely start on the ground (laughs) as is every behavior and um you know probably target or walk on since Zoe gets that pretty well um just from me moving and then isolate it um adding a vocal cue and then me standing still asking her to walk and then um transferring it to the saddle I think that's probably yeah and I mean it's subjective too you know each horse is different so like Gulliver, he's he's the Vanner and Shire Cross. He's young and he's just insecure. He's young, he's green, he's in a new place without his owner. Uh, she sent him to me for training for context. Uh, so for him, it's like making it simple. Um, but something that's really helped me work with horses, especially new horses especially, is defining what kind of learner they are. So for example, Bella and Uma, remember Bella is my older Arab, and then Uma is the deaf Mustang. They're both heavily visual learners. So cones are extremely um, beneficial for them. Uh, Some of my other horses are more audible learners. They work well off of sound more than anyone else. Um, And then a few of the horses are good physical learners. They value that type of learning the Mm -hmm. most um but then you know when you're breaking it down to speed and movement and just you know move moving forward um and you get down to extension and high energy and complicated like stacking of behaviors uh bluntly put this is where you need to be a good rider and i like i mean it a good rider you have to be balanced you have to be educated you have to understand how your horse moves why he moves where he's stiff how he engages or why he doesn't engage etc cetera, etc cetera. as well as yourself and then stay out of his way and yeah. make a cue after be fluid like if your horse doesn't go forward it, maybe it's cuz he doesn't want to do something else um if you repeat what your horse is struggling with he's going to lose even more will to perform it um and i guarantee if your horse is not moving forward and you think you've tried everything then i guarantee there's an underlying anxiety right and i was gonna say um when you said if you ask your horse to move forward and he doesn't it's because he doesn't want to my first question is why why doesn't the horse (laughs) want to move forward and the easiest thing to slap on there is a label that the horse is lazy, which is rarely ever the case. I have yet to encounter a horse that refuses to move forward because he has a personality defect. Horses mostly want to move forward. They are designed biologically to move all the time. And if your horse is balking and doesn't want to move forward, it's likely a fear, pain, or anxiety, or confusion issue. Um, Or PTSD. That's what mm -hmm. I've run into a lot is that just riders in the past have made things so difficult and complicated, confusing, or just traumatic that they do not want to move forward because they don't know you and they don't know what you're going to do. Right. And on the high energy movements uh, that require 
they're going to require um, a higher level reinforcement. Um, and also there's something to be said about when you are reinforcing, you're creating a positive association with that behavior, which can also become a motivator. It's what we call secondary reinforcers. So if the horse has a really positive association based on your reinforcement history and your training that you've done with them, they have a really positive association with, say, canter transitions, then the horse is going to love doing canter transitions. And then you can slowly start to build. And this is where you get to be able to do more and go for longer because the the cues themselves, and this is what we call um, behavior chains, the cue becomes a reinforcer in and of itself. It releases those feel-good emotions and um, hormones, uh, neurochemicals, whatever, in the brain <laughs> that make the horse enjoy it. It's it's something akin to um, what they get out of a primary reinforcer, those feel-good things like dopamine. And so um, when you are, say, uh, riding around the arena and you ask your horse for a trot transition, once your horse has a reinforcement history and really has a strong understanding of those cues, then you can start to go for longer. And then um, that trot cue will lead to the canter cue. And then you can canter. And then maybe when you get done with your canter, you can click and treat. And now you've done a behavior chain. And um, that's how you build up to being able to to do more. And like you said, with biomechanics, it comes from not only the horse, but also yourself. And I know that it gets really tricky, especially with finances. But for me, having a chiropractor has been the biggest help ever because um, my right hip is three inches higher and tilted like an inch to two inches more forward than my left hip. So imagine what my ass looks like in a saddle. <laughs> so <laughs> no, we we're lucky too. We have a physical therapist who comes to uh, my boss's barn and that was game changing. Yeah. I have an extremely traumatic uh, left shoulder injury and that actually, that shoulder doesn't particularly change things, <laughs> but I spent so much time fixing that shoulder that now my right shoulder has completely, like my whole right side has collapsed because I didn't. Yeah. That time and that I had the same issue. Um, Zoe, once upon a time I was lunging her and she had a little woohoo zoomy moment on the lunge line and she about yanked my right arm out of socket. And, um, I must have torn something and, um, because I could not ride unless my shoulder was like KT taped <laughs> and it hurts so bad. And then I started compensating everywhere else in my body. And like with my hips, it was like I was permanently stuck, um, cantering to the right <laughs> in all gates and all directions. Um, cause my hip was forward and then I was blocking her with my left hip and um, so, I mean, it's really important that you are aware of the issues that you have and the compensations that you're making. We're never going to be perfect. Nobody is ever beautifully mm -hmm. balanced. The horses are never going to be beautifully balanced. But you have to take those things into consideration, especially when your horse is not responding to something. Like Zoe was always very hard to bend left. And she would fight me and brace. Go figure. <laughs> because I'm stuck going right. Um, so... Just just be aware of when you run into issues and things like that. Um, as you were saying about being a really good rider is you have to be aware of where you might be blocking and then find a unique way that you can ride to change those things and modify it to fit your body. And then, you know, you can work around those issues even if you don't have a body worker that can help you with that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an investment. If you want to be a NASCAR driver, then you have to learn how to drive really well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's a good way to uh, finish off this question is, you know, simply put, just reward what you want. If you want your horse, you know, ask yourself, what do I want my horse to do? I want my horse to move forward. So then reward it for moving forward. If it's if your horse offers just a step of the slow, the balanced, collected, steady or hesitant, reward it like it's it's super simple. You have to reinforce what you want your horse to repeat. Right. This goes back to the definition of positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. You are strategically adding a reinforcer to increase the behaviors you want to see more of. And if your horse has a strong reinforcement history of walking around with their back lifted and their haunches engaged and their head lowered, carrying themselves properly, then A, you probably won't need a bridle anymore. (laughs) And B, you won't see those other, you know, maladaptive self-carriage models. And then your horse will be better educated, healthier, and able to carry themselves without much interference from you. And then you can work on other things. And that's how you start building to create a your ideal competition horse, you know, that's able to do all of these incredible things um, because you have the foundation and the horse has a reinforcement history of the things that you want to see. I get this question a lot with horses that drag people over to the grass. I'm like, okay, so your horse is dragging you to the grass because it is motivated to get the grass and it's more motivating than you yanking on their face trying to deter them. So Mm -hmm. what are you doing to make leading motivating? Zero things. <laughs> I actually talked a lot about um, in one of my posts about trailer loading. Um, I try to make sure that my horse is not particularly following my body, but following, you know, simply put, where I'm asking them to go. Usually that means following my hand. A lot mm-hmm. of times, well, especially like Lily and Nova, who are very personable horses, they want to walk right on top of me, then open my hand and have them follow my hand. And if they're crossing over behind me, then open, like if they're on my left side, I want them on my right, then just open my right hand and they can easily see that. They're like, oh, you want me to go over there? Yeah, you're giving them direction and information of how you want them to behave, as well as, I would assume, reinforcing for the behavior behaviors you want to see. If the horse isn't being reinforced for the right behaviors outside of the absence of you doing anything that they don't like, it's probably not going to be very motivating in most cases, especially when you have, you know, beautiful, lush summer grass beside you. You know, the horse is like, I'll take the few yanks that I'm inevitably going to get on my face um, so I can do this. And also, I would not want my horse to lead beautifully because he is avoiding me yanking on his face, you know? Yeah. And actually, that's something that I've had to deal with a lot um, because we've had a lot of horses in recovery lately um, at um, my boss's place. And when I start having to tack walk them and get them back up into reconditioning, it's so scary because these horses are just going to seemingly unpredictably explode. And I've been thinking about that a lot because I will never have that problem with my horses. They genuinely enjoy walking with me. I walk, I hand walk them literally all the time and everywhere, especially when it's raining. We hand walk down to the public arena because the sand dries faster and it's softer so they can go run and roll and all that. But they walk quietly there. They walk quietly back no matter how often they're like staying under shelter to stay out of the rain and feeling cooped up. Um, you know, again, reward the behaviors you want to see, but also make yourself something that your horse wants to be with and to follow and know that 
they know that things are just happier and quiet mm-hmm. with you. And beyond that, um, you saying that going to the arena where they can run and buck and roll and play is another thing to consider about leading is if your horse is resisting going where you're going, <laughs> do they <laughs> want to go there? Is it a good place to go? Because if your horses are like, oh, yes, I get to go back to the pasture to see my buddies. Awesome. They're probably not going to yeah. drag you to the grass. If they're like, oh, yes, I get to go run around and buck and play in this arena. Awesome probably not going to drag you to the grass. So that's another thing to consider. Um, Okay, so um, next question. Um, It ties in well to uh, what we were just talking about, about biomechanics, as far as getting those um, movements, like setting a horse up for a fence um, when you need connection. Um, You know, because a lot of people, at least the way I was trained, was that when you are setting a horse up for a jump or you're trying to get hind end engagement um, or a proper bend, that you must be connected to your horse at all times. And even uh, Jim Wofford, when I rode under him, he said that your release is a misnomer when, you know, when people say you go over a fence and you have an automatic release or a crest release or whatever, you're not actually ever supposed to release. You're supposed to, sorry, my cat is on my desk knocking things over. Um, but that you're not ever actually supposed to release. You're supposed to follow the horse and maintain connection, um, with proper position. Now, knowing what I know, I could not disagree more (laughs) with that. Well, that just goes into how you want to ride. You know, if that's something that you want is to be connected through your hands at all times, then you know what? That's on you. For me, that's not my style. For me, connection is through my seat. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, Lily's a bridalist horse. I ride bridalist all the time. I have absolutely no problem rocking her back and just thinking with her. But at the same time, she is a naturally phenomenal jumper. I am not a person who wants to jump a horse that is not naturally good at it because to me that is unsafe. Yeah. And I mean, for Zoe, it's hard to say because so much of what we did was so incorrect. I actually spent a lot of time watching videos the other day of um, us competing. And I noticed, because I'm looking at things with a different eye now, um, in our more recent show jumping rounds, it was really interesting um, about us like three to four strides out from the fence, she would throw her head up and she essentially would yank the reins out of my hand so that when she got to the base of the fence, she could use her um, brachiocephalic muscles, (laughs) which are those uh, that connect their neck to their chest. So she could physically pull herself up and pull her front end up rather than sit back on her haunches and round her back and lift that way, she was pulling herself up. And if I had connection and I was holding her head down, she couldn't do that. I'm not saying what she did was the correct way to jump, but she was compensating for her back pain. And um, in doing so, it was just funny how she adapted to that. But also, like, that should have been a red flag to me, and it never was, you know? Mm -hmm. She was using herself incorrectly because of issues she was having. And, um, you know, me being able to rock her back would have been very helpful, but we never really worked on that. It was kind of just, well, make it look nice and, you know, collect her up to the base of the fence so she has to hit the mark or whatever, you know. she. Mm-hmm. I thought that shortening her stride in some ways would rock her back. And I guess it does sort of, but it wasn't achieving, um, you know, good position. <laughs> Well, and Lily made me respect that. What I mean by when I said, like, I don't want to jump a horse that's not good at jumping because Lily was really good at jumping. And she I mean, she was speeding up for different reasons, but she would sometimes speed up because she saw a better distance than I did. Yeah. Um, And in that case, you know, 
when I have a horse that's good at jump, that's good at jumping, I have to trust her and I have to believe in her. And sometimes she's going to save me more than I'm going to save her. Um, but it's, if, if your horse is really struggling to sit back, then guess what? I'm going to say something that I haven't said before ever in my life. Do groundwork, (laughs) Um, do (laughs) things on the ground. If you can't do it, in a halter with a lunge line, or if you can't, for me, my personal thing is if I can't do this bridalist, I shouldn't do it at all. Think about stuff like that. Like what is, what is making you feel like you can do this when you can't do it in another situation? Right. And I'm, I'm sort of the same way, um, in the less is more, um, aspect that I would like to be able to do all things bridalist because then that would mean that my tr- horse truly understands how to properly carry herself in a way that is not only safe and effective for us, but also healthy for her body. And, um, you know, I, I think like I was saying earlier about, um, traditional, uh, eventing is to us. And I, I know that I'm not speaking to a pocket of the world and it, it's, I mean, I haven't explored all realms of eventing, but um, my experience with North American eventing is that uh, groundwork is predominantly just lunge line work, occasionally in Pessoa systems or side rein systems. And um, while that can do some things, it normally doesn't do what it's supposed to. And then you're not setting the horse up to be able to know how to do the movements that you're going to ask under saddle on his own. So then you're lumping everything together and the horse asking or asking the horse to do these incredibly difficult movements. They are not designed to sit on their hind end. 60% of their body weight is up front for a reason. The things we are asking them to do are unnatural. So we might as well at least give them the benefit of doing it well in a way that supports their overall health. And we don't end up like with hawk issues like Zoe or back issues and all of the other well, issues. Yeah. And if you, if your horse can't do it without a rider, then what makes you think that they're going to do it with a rider? I know. You're carrying an extra like hundred or 200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, that is a significant portion of their body weight. And to the people that are like, oh, well, you know, whatever, I don't want to do groundwork. I implore you to go slap on a backpack with whatever the percentage of your body weight to your horse's body weight is and go run for the duration of the time (laughs) that you're asking your horse to ride. It is incredibly taxing, you know, especially if you're just pulling the horse out of the paddock after a week off, you know, you have to do strength training just as much as you would for yourself. And that is something that I severely missed. And I think that a lot of disciplines really, really miss. Um, and you just go straight to getting on because that's the fun part. And who wants to do groundwork is so boring. But if you make it yeah. fun for both of you, then it's not so bad. Because <laughs> you well, enjoy that's it. Well, the second half of that question too. Like how can you have proper connection, hind end engagement, inside leg to outside rein? Um, if you're going to ask that question, then you also need to first answer what does that mean? What mm. is hind end engagement? Like, can you see it? Uh, can you ask for it? Can you tell why the horse isn't doing it? So I'm going to make try to make this as brief as possible. But inside leg to outside rein, it's more than just my horse is on the forehand or that I have to push my horse from my inside leg to my outside rein. It's if your horse is on the forehand, then the inside front leg is likely stepping inward into the circle rather than forward. It likely also means that the inside hind leg is not crossing up underneath of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, if the horse is sitting back, then you have to keep that inside hind leg underneath him. Um, I'll, I'll tell some of my students to help them figure it out. If you can't feel when your horse is leaning on your inside leg, you might instead be able to feel when your outside rein is slack or vice yeah. versa. You might, you know, stuff like that. It's 
And if you can understand that and understand how horses do that and why horses do that, then you can teach it. So like for Lily, she knows very simply, I think this is one of our later questions on like how to turn. And this is one way that I teach it, especially with an advanced horse like Lily. I so I hope you're going to use the analogy. Back, her hip goes, her, like say we're tracking right. So her right hip goes to the left. And all I have to do is just keep that outside shoulder moving forward. The turn comes from the hind end pushing out, not from putting her nose onto the circle. Yeah. I saw this really, really awesome um, graphic of a turning horse. And it, the first picture was of somebody riding um, and it's like an aerial view. So like above the horse, Um, if you pull on the inside rein to turn solely, you're using the inside neck muscles of the horse. And that only goes so far as the inside flank. But instead, if you use the outside of the horse to bend around, you're using from the outside hip to the outside ear, you're using those muscles Mm -hmm. to turn the horse around instead of the inside neck muscles, which is the goal. And please, for the sake of everyone listening, because it was so helpful for me, use your train analogy. Explain it. Go. Yes. Yes. Okay. Actually, before I say that, just because you said uh, inside hip to outside ear, you have to also think that the inside hip and the inside ear are constantly traveling in an uphill motion. But okay, the train <laughs> analogy, because I saw a really fantastic visual of this. And then I was thinking, okay, how am I going to describe this without the visual? Your horse moves as a train where the wheels all follow the same track. Yep. It's not a truck and trailer where the truck has to make a wide turn so that the trailer can just skim the corner um and in the train analogy your horse's nose also counts as the wheel the nose leads the front legs follow and the hind legs follow they're all on the same track if you visualize the truck and trailer or you know especially those of you who do haul horses you have to take such wide turns especially if you're in you're driving like four horse plus trailers Mm -hmm. you have to take wide turns just to make that the far hind wheels make that turn as well as the disconnection between the front half and the back half it's yeah if you're on yeah it's such a perfect metaphor because if you're only turning based on the front end of the horse you're missing half of the horse (laughs) and the the most important part is the caboose it's propelling everything and the the wheels of the train are propelling the horse forward whereas the truck and trailer all the forward motion is coming from just the front end right and uh, it's it's just such a brilliant metaphor (laughs) i love it and i think it deserve it deserves to be heard um okay do you have anything else to say well i guess i still want to talk about connection a little bit because um we touched on it a little bit but from my perception and the way that i want to ride i think there's a way in a world that i could make it look very similar to traditional training and i just listened to a shauna Karish episode about this it's one of her more recent ones on the clicker training 101 for horses or whatever podcast um and she just did an episode over this as well um but she talked about how she wanted all her cues to look very normal so if her horse ended up with somebody else they could still ride the horse and be effective because the horse would already have the knowledge from the cues that it wouldn't need the escalation or necessarily the reinforcement. Um, But in keeping connection to me, it seems unnecessary now. Um, Maybe for minor things, then I might use it. Um, You know, if Zoe were to get a little bit on her forehand, um, you know, I might incorporate the connection after training, um, you know, connection equals woe or you even then I would be more inclined to use a verbal cue I'm trying I I just I 
am sort of with you more so on the if I can do it bridalless, then I have achieved the goal and I don't need it anymore. And my my understanding of classical dressage is that the horse is to carry himself because he knows how to use his body and he is comfortable and balanced and strong. And you don't really need rider interference then, um, except for like turning and gait changes and things like that. So if you're having to hold your horse up or maintain connection to keep the behavior happening, it, it says to me that the horse doesn't understand duration or um, how to properly carry himself. Like if you let go and it all falls apart, that's not self-carriage. <laughs> that's Well, that goes right back into you get what you train. So yeah. for us, you know, we mutually have a goal of using as few tools as possible. So we specifically train for that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, with my boss's horses, um, some of them are very physically capable and they are easily going to be Grand Prix horses if they're not already. And so self-carriage is something that's very reasonable for them. Some of them, though, that are, have reached a Grand Prix level or are getting up there that are at, at least the fourth or the pre-St. George level, they are not trained for, you know, that independent self-carriage they're specifically trained to do it with the rider so again you get what you train for right and i i think that that is that goes back to the goals if that is your goal to have the horse depend on your hand for um information of what it is supposed to be doing that's one thing but in my opinion um constant contact is the goal should be for it to be unnecessary because yeah. And I, that's still, that's subjective. Cause you know, you can make it look clean and fluid, even if you are going to be using a lot of hand, but keep in mind, if you're going to use your hand, it has to come from your seat first, then your leg, and then it returns to your hand. Yeah. And I think that that is also the misconception that the horse, you know, has to be on your hand for it to work. (laughs) And a lot of people unknowingly and unintentionally often ride off of their hand. I was one of those. Um, Go back and watch some of my old videos and see if I am if I look like I could ride without any reins. Oh, we all are. I mean, we're, we're humans. We use our hands for everything. Yep. Every single person is going to go through that phase is they're going to be handsy with their riding. But then it's up to you, again, to take that initiative, take lessons and pursue it and train yourself how to ride without your hands. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that goes back to the strength training on both the horse and the rider. Um, can you both carry yourself? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the next question we have are is what are some of the cues that you use um, and train for your horses? I think this has been predominantly answered, but are there any that we haven't really covered? I love my whistle cue. It's my favorite <laughs> thing in the entire world. <laughs> ah, so um, It looks so cool. Because didn't you pick it up from uh, Lauren Alport? I think I unintentionally did. Yeah. I have followed her for a long time, and I don't remember specifically thinking, oh, Lauren makes this sound. I'm going right. to do the same thing. But it just ended up happening. It was really funny. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I do is my <laughs> whistle cue. Um, it does mean a few different things. I, I do use it as my bridge cue. Um, it's usually, I guess, in general, the basis or the basic meaning of it is that the horse and I are together and there is a reward in that situation. Um, so it could be if, if I'm bringing my horses in that I whistle and they come to me. Mm -hmm. Um, if again, I use it as my bridge, but then it would be like, if I want the horse to stop and I approach the horse, I have to say, whoa, and then whistle. Um, if I want the horse to just directly come to me, I would whistle. So I can use it for a few different things. Um, 
But as far as my favorite cues go, definitely the whistle. Um, I do like targeting cones. It's not for everyone. Actually, surprisingly, it's really not for Lily, um, <laughs> but it is for other horses. Yeah. Um, let's see. I have the cone. I have the whistle. Um, I do have two different target cues. I have target and I have touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two distinctions between that are target is the horse approaches a stationary target. And for touch, it is that the horse has to remain stationary and reach his nose to a target. Interesting. I was guessing that the distinction was going to be target would be following and touch would be like just to reach out and touch it or walk up and touch it. Target I do use for like moving from cone to cone, okay. but that it's also because I have the release cue. So it's I have to ask the horse to walk or trot on or sometimes like Nova really knows let's go is that we are moving together. Mm-hmm. Um, for Target, I have found it really beneficial for like the photography horses. Like if you want that nice, beautiful, uh, yeah. outstretched neck, they know that all four feet remain still and then they reach for the stick. And I also I do use different targets for target. It's a cone and for touch. It's a stick. Okay. Um, but while that's on my mind, um, I, you know, it's, I wouldn't particularly say it's my favorite cue, but it is something that I teach every single horse is whoa. And the meaning of whoa, mm-hmm. whoa does not mean like come down from a transition or come to a stop. It means stop. It means all four feet are still, and it does not mean you stop and then move forward again. You have to stop and then you have to give a release cue to move forward. I cannot stress that enough. <laughs> whoa is extremely important. Yeah. How did you go about teaching that? one that is it starts usually with i have to stop with them it has to be our energy comes down and we're relaxed and our feet don't move if the feet do move then i just have to wait and i have to start again if the feet continuously move then i have to reward the moment that all four feet are still it works in the cross ties it works when i'm leading it works when i'm riding it's extremely beneficial yeah so just kind of every time you catch your horse about to stop yes. you just go it's ahead 100% and percent capturing uh, yeah. Action. <laughs> yeah. So another thing I just remembered that I wanted to say was that um, for those that might be listening and aren't familiar with the term bridge, it's a, a marker signal or the click. Um, I use the sk sound, which I actually stole from Swing Jinx on Instagram, um, Solera. Um, so we're all about stealing people's marker signals. I would so, <laughs> so love to use a whistle, but my whistle isn't consistent enough due to a chronic dry mouth. <laughs> so That is the important thing is my whistle is the same thing every time, specifically if I'm using it for a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if I'm trying to bring my horses in, it might change a little bit, but that's just, you know, it's sometimes I even just call their name and they come in. It's not super strict. Yeah. And I think that's something important to consider. And something that I didn't consider that I will caution people against is uh, when you are riding, if you choose my bridge signal, the sk sound, has a tendency to get muffled in with hoof prints on sand. <laughs> so, <laughs> just uh, so sometimes I end up going, like, <laughs> oh my, my horses God, can I've hear had it. it. As people have with their iPhones, they have the little whistle sound for the text cue, oh, and my go. horses will react to that. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I, uh, you have to be very careful. And a lot of people ask if you can use like a sound i would really caution against that because that is such a common sound um you know you don't want to add any more confusion to your training uh when you're say at a competition and everybody's clucking at their horses and your horse is like what is going on (laughs) there's so many clucks happening so pick a sound that you can make consistently that can be heard i know a lot of um uh traditional clicker trainers use the 
sound. I personally hate that sound, and it takes a lot of effort for me to do that with my mouth, and I don't like the way it sounds, so <laughs> that's why I opted for something else. You can also ride with a tangible clicker or make any number of sounds, just as long as it's not confusing for your horse. Um, I also know a lot of people choose a word for reinforcement. I tend to... I don't know what your opinion is on that, but I, I tend, wouldn't do that. No. <laughs> I, there's there's so much variation in the way you say words. Um, I mean, it works for some people. I know some people that definitely do do that. They use good or yes, and they say it the same way. Particularly dog trainers, oddly enough, choose yes a lot, and they go yes, but they say it that way every single time, and it is very difficult to do when you get a subpar behavior <laughs> and you're like, eh, I didn't really like that, but it was close enough, and you go yes, <laughs> your animal. Well, that like, actually reminds me that brings it up you can teach your horse the meaning of good boy or good girl Mm -hmm. um it does it has to be like that you have to have an emphasis to it but you can associate positive things coming from that phrase especially when you're riding if you want your horse to continue doing something but you want them to register that it is the correct thing that it is very beneficial to have them understand good boy good boy that's a great job yeah i actually have some links to um information about keep going signals that i'll uh try to remember to link in the description of this episode down below um but yeah those are super beneficial especially in like what we were talking about with the um behavior chains um so if you ask your horse to trot and you're not quite ready to reinforce but you want to let your horse know that it was right you can say good boy but only if it's already a conditioned secondary reinforcer. So just like the the bridge signal, for instance, is a secondary reinforcer. The horse knows that that is associated with the food and the good things. Um, and so if you associate the good with keep going and it's the right answer, food will come eventually. And now here's the click, then that's where you yeah. get that. Okay, so moving right along, we've already answered this in part, but um, how do you ride any amount of distance, even one lap around the arena, while riding with positive reinforcement? So people tend to ask, like, when can I stop using the treats, which I'm sure you've heard a million (laughs) times. Um, That's not how it works. It's that you increase the length of a behavior or the length in between treats or the stack of behaviors between those rewards. You don't take those rewards away. So if you take the rewards away, the horse will stop presenting that action. If you want to be doing laps on laps on laps, you have to start with steps on steps on steps. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though, you know, I, I, again, I don't work my horses into a sweat, but it at least starts, especially with those reactive horses, you have to be rewarding those quiet, calm, relaxed steps. And then eventually those get longer and longer and the horse continues that frame of mind. And then, you know, sometimes it's really just before you know it, you're just going all the way around the arena. Um, Again, with my forward horses, speed's not a problem. And most of the time moving forward consistently is not a problem. And they do enjoy just cantering around and around and around. It's really fun for them. Um, But I also use a lot of trail riding. I have tons of trails. I love trail riding. It's very fun for all of us. Um, And that really helps just extending that time between rewards because the horse is getting natural positive reinforcements from just doing the action. They love being on trail. They love galloping (laughs) along. It's fun for the both of us. 
Yeah, and I think I think that goes back to the behavior chains and making sure your horse understands reinforcement. If you slow down, you go faster, and it's all about building that foundation. I don't know if you guys are getting a feel for the theme here, <laughs> but if you if you set up for success, then you will have a horse with zero holes in its training. Um, and I understand. The thing that we all want to do is ride. That's the whole reason everybody gets into horses is because you want to ride and it seems really inconvenient and annoying when you could just get on and kick and then off you go and then you just ride the whole time that you want to until you're done. Um, I mean, it's convenient until you land yourself in the hospital, we'll put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, or you have a horse that's costing you oodles of money and vet bills because it's stressed and unhappy. Um, Yes. Or if it just doesn't, and then you might end up with a horse that doesn't like you very much or isn't really enjoying his job. I mean, there are endless answers based on the individual horse, but I think really the best shot that you have at having a mutually um, joyful and beneficial experience for the both of you um would be to do it that way for sure (laughs) okay so let's see how do you turn and change directions what's the best way to do this bridalist versus bridled since we've been talking about that so this goes again what i mentioned earlier the audible learners visual learners physical learners and also what i explained with lily about bending and turning coming from the hip and the control of the hind end rather than pointing her nose on track um granted if the hind end is correct the nose naturally goes on track um but in addition to that lily uh particularly knows other way as the signal to switch leads that's something again (laughs) you know big shock i taught in groundwork um and it just eventually transferred into saddle um that helped because prior to that especially when i did train her more traditionally lead changes were extremely stressful they were speedy and they were tense um so this she naturally (laughs) did flying changes not every horse can do that Mm. nova especially is not capable of that yeah um but that was just it was uh, again capturing the behavior she naturally did the flying change um Sometimes it would just be opening my hand and she would just switch directions and do a flying change and I would just capture the cue to that. Um, But, you know, there's other ways. Uh, With Uma, the deaf Mustang, how to move off the leg without increase of pressure. Again, pressure is your friend. Um, But Uma is also heavily visual and so is Bella. So cones, again, were a really great asset. Um, Again, you have a departure cue for Bella that was uh, audible for Uma that was sometimes physical that was sometimes visual Mm -hmm. um depending on how many people you have working with her we do often when someone's riding her we have someone on the ground as well um but cones help targets help visual things help especially with those visual learners um a lot of times you won't realize how advantageous your visual cues are Mm. until you meet a visual horse (laughs) um And then once they can calmly move from cone to cone, then you can start associating physical or audible cues with that. Um, Nova is visual and audible. Um, Absolutely not physical. You cannot use physical cues with him. Um, And then on the ground, he follows an open hand. I taught this with lunging that I didn't want to be chasing chasing him with a whip or escalating my voice commands into pressure. Uh, So I taught him to follow if I open my hand. If I open my right hand, he tracks right. My left hand, he tracks left. Um, Lunging and following, it's all like that. So when I started riding him and I taught him turning, 
I used a drastically open rein so he could see it from mm-hmm. me in the saddle behind him. Um, and then now that that he's much further along, he knows that he can move off the leg. He can side pass. He can get his hind underneath him. And, you know, my weight shift as I switch directions, my shoulders will tilt, uh, the left lead versus the right lead. All of that comes, but you know, uh, of course I originally had to have that steering because steering is as important as halting. Um, so that's how it worked is it was visual. He could see that my hand was opening. It looked somewhat traditional, but again, it had heavily underlying positive reinforcement cues. Right. It's motivated by the positive reinforcement, not by the release of pressure. And that is the the key difference. And I think yeah. um, another way that I have heard about um, teaching turning with positive reinforcement, uh, especially if you're in a situation like I am where you're by yourself t- literally 24-7 and the people that are here are definitely not going to help you click or train a horse. <laughs> so um, even my boss, she's like, nope, that's your thing. <laughs> and she'll let me problem solve, but that's not really her prerogative. So, and that's fine. That's okay. Um, but that just means I have to do a lot of things by myself. And uh, this solution I thought sounded like a really awesome idea. And I wish I'd heard about it when I started um, Zoe under saddle again prior to kissing spine um, was to um, have a handheld target on you and sort of like what you were saying with the open rein is you can just um, if your horse assuming is good at um, targeting and following a target you can hold the target out to the side and have the horse move forward towards it around a turn um, and then you can start whether you're in a neck rein or a neck ring or um have reins on <laughs> God, my brain is dead um then you can start to incorporate the tactile cue it's not the horse is not turning because you're pulling on one side of his neck and they're moving off of the pressure um or because you're pulling on one side of his mouth and he's trying to go with that pressure to get it to ease up um so instead the new cue or the old cue is going to be the target the first cue that you've taught on the ground and then when you're in the saddle you present the target and then you after you get the turn a few times you start to introduce that the neck rope is going to touch them on the outside of their neck then you're going to present the target get the turn click treat and then eventually you start to fade out the target because like we've said a hundred times now (laughs) the neck rope or your rein contact on the bit is going to um, predict that a turn is coming and then the horse starts to turn just based off the tactile cue because it's motivated by positive reinforcement and not because the horse is trying to get you to take the pressure off. It's also important here um, to be sure that you are not using negative reinforcement under the guise of a tactile cue <laughs> because if you're still pulling, then, I mean, you're kind of defeating your positive reinforcement work because then it it's not making sense to the horse and you need to back up a step and make sure they really understand turning with the target and that the the turn cue um that's tactile is predicting it so that you don't have to pull um and that the horse responds when you give the cue and then there's no need to escalate the pressure um so did i explain that well <laughs> i don't know no you did and i actually want to mention because i also saw the the steering coming from a handheld target yeah. uh when the willing equine adele originally did it um and it does work i'm not gonna i'm not at all gonna say that it doesn't um especially with uma i think we did that as well um but the reason that i didn't do that with nova um and 
a lot of people don't think about this because I don't think people understand the extent of how reactive he was. And most people don't handle a horse like that. Yeah. If I was holding a handheld target, yeah. that was just much too triggering for mm-hmm. him. I had to use something else. He was comfortable. He's very comfortable with me in the saddle, but I can't, I still can't hold backpacks. I, uh, you know, adjusting my girth, I can, but adjusting my stirrup, I think is too much for him. Um, for, he also, he loves my Western saddle. It's a wind tech. So it's super lightweight, but he loves it because the leg flaps are just straight down the sides. Yeah. Um, it took him a really long time to get used to the dressage saddle because the leg flaps flap. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just way too much yeah. for him. And so that's another thing. Consider those. Yeah. Another thing to definitely consider about the individual horse and their history. And if your horse uh, was maybe an off the track and has a history of like excessive whipping and things flapping and meaning going forward, that might not be an option. I actually saw it, um, from fair horsemanship and the webinar she did. Um, I didn't, I guess I have like a very vague memory of Adele doing it, but I guess I don't remember. I'll have to go back and look at her stuff too. Um, and I think that would work for Zoe because she's not particularly reactive to whips, um, mostly because she didn't race for very long. And I think I used a whip on her maybe once or twice in her whole life because she's always been so forward. Um, but yeah, that's definitely um, something to consider. Um, okay, so our next question is, do you ever get to a point of clicking behaviors and rewarding at the end? Like, I'm assuming they mean at the end of like an entire dressage test or a jumping course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, again, that's going to be that's very advanced. Yeah. You have to work your horse up to that. Nova is, you know, reaching that point. I can. Well, I really can't go through a whole dressage test without rewarding him yet. I can get to the end of the test, but there's rewards in between. Um, that used to not even be the case. We used to only be able to ride for five minutes. After that, it was 10 minutes and then 15 minutes, and then we could actually finish the test. Um, Lily, who's much further along, flat work, she will not accept complete flat work without a reward. Jumping, it's boring. she won't do this anymore. <laughs> I'll say that. It's boring. <laughs> yes, it's boring. Um, and also, Lily, just overall, about a year ago, she just kind of decided she wasn't a riding horse anymore, which, again, totally fine. I love her to death. Mm-hmm. Um, but back when she was a jumping horse, courses were easy for her because she brought so much energy to the table and because it just was a thing. It just, it was very fluid. It flowed very, very well. Um, and that's, you have to be careful when you do that because, you know, part of that was I let her, I let her amp herself up and that was fine. I could handle that. Um, but again, if I wanted to ride something bridalist, I can't control an amped up horse or right. two amped up horse with just a neck rope. So you have to be very careful about what you're doing. Again, we've said it like three times, <laughs> you get what you train. <laughs> yeah. And I, I definitely got that with Zoe as well. I, she also got very amped up and excited and or anxious, who knows <laughs> about jumping um I like to think she liked it she on cross country I've never seen her eyes brighter (laughs) Um, but um it it definitely was something that I would never have done bridalist because I would not have had an ounce of control because I could stop her um you know via her face (laughs) in a bridal even though we only ever I mean I think the worst quote-unquote worst bit I ever put in her mouth was a thin wonder bit um that has like the rings and then the two um, rings on the inside of the top and the bottom of the bit, not on the outside. You know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, that was like the strongest bit we had on her. And, um, so, I mean, that's not a very strong bit. Um, but it's still like, I couldn't have done it without that. And that is, that will be our goal. Um, you know, if she does end up becoming a jumping horse again, which who knows because of her hawks, it's mildly concerning to me, but that will be up to her. Um, but yeah, I think that that is, um, definitely, um, yeah, I don't, there's nothing for me to say there. I'm already thinking about something else. So I'm just going to do it. <laughs> um, so another consideration that you and I talked about, um, before we jumped on this was, um, that for some reason, it seems very odd to reinforce horses with positive reinforcement, um, you know, all the while you're riding. But in negative reinforcement, if you think about it, the entire time you're riding, you're reinforcing your horse. You're constantly adding pressure, releasing pressure, adding pressure, releasing pressure. You're reinforcing over and over and over and over and over again. And you're not having to chain any behaviors together. You don't have to work on anything being inherently reinforcing. You don't have to use keep going signals and all of that. And while it sounds great, you know, sometimes you end up with emotional fallout or confusion because it gets all thrown in together. Whereas with positive reinforcement, you have to build from the beginning. Otherwise, you're not going to get the behavior at all. And so I think that's where it requires a lot of nuance and education as well, which I mean, I guess could be a deterrent for some people. But I should think that if you're wanting to compete at a higher level and ride with a large amount of skill, you should want to have that amount of education under your belt. And that takes personal initiative, of course. But um in order to ride with positive reinforcement, I mean, you're asking for a really, really complex behavior chain to get a couple of alfalfa pellets at the end. You better be sure that your reward is going to be worth the time that the horse took to do the behavior. And, um, you know, if that's the case, it might involve you getting off and ending the session there because they did such a good job. Why drill? And um, give them a really nice reward, maybe graze them for a while after something that is like really a big deal to the horse um, or their favorite treat, even though it might be a little sugary like carrots. <laughs> um, no, that's very important to say because that goes right back to greed. You know, if something works, you want to keep doing it naturally because, oh my God, it's working. Let's mm -hmm. do it. Let's do it. And that's why people are so drawn to the negative reinforcement enforcement because you kick and kick and kick and even if you're increasing the pressure that you're using it's still working and like you said you're reinforcing constantly even if you're using negative reinforcement yes. um so again make sure that your reward is as valuable as the behaviors that you are stacking yes because you're not asking one individual behavior like a turn through negative reinforcement and then you're getting the release on the end, which is the reinforcer, you can't do that in positive reinforcement in order to look like traditional riding or normal riding. It has to be much harder and it requires much more skill. And that's where I have so much respect for people like Georgia uh, Bruce that ride full dressage tests competitively with positive reinforcement. And she's a para equestrian, like brilliant, brilliant individual. And, um, so things like that, I mean, it takes a lot of time and skill. And if, do you know what level she rides at? It's very high level dressage. I'm pretty sure. No, I really don't. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I haven't seen enough of her tests. I've only seen her yeah, on Instagram. Me neither. And, but she is incredible and she's a very skilled trainer. And that is the thing. Like, I mean, and, and that's not to say that negative reinforcement trainers at that level aren't skilled either. Of course they are. But, you get to reinforce every step. So it's not necessarily a fair comparison, um, 
you, between the two. I mean, you can look at positive reinforcement trainers having to stop every other circle, but also the fact that they're getting that circle without any reinforcement is ridiculously impressive and speaks a lot to um, the level that their horse is um, enjoying what's happening as well, you know, because they're doing and, it. Well, and your green six-year-old is not going to be performing Piaf and Passage, you right. know, it, it takes training. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you can't expect to jump all the way there, especially when positive reinforcement is still in its infancy in the equestrian world. I mean, it's going to take a lot of personal education because it's not the predominant way to train. So it's going to be harder right now. But if more of us start using it, then it becomes more accessible. More people start using it. Less people have to do it the hard way, like you and me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so... Let's move on to if someone isn't interested in switching to mainly or completely positive reinforcement, what are some things they can do to make their training more enjoyable for the horse while ridden? Tricks. Do tricks. They're so much fun. Um, <laughs> or I also do a lot of one-time lessons with people like in their cross ties or their stall with their horse because um, people don't want to do plus R because – they just they think it's too much work. Uh, like we just said, you know, if it you is. want to get to those high levels, then you have to put in all the training to it. Um, and then for them, you know, if they haven't done plus R before, then it is just too different sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, straight up, if you want to learn something, you have to put in that effort and you have to try. Um, if you were to, you know, with how quickly people quit when they try plus R, if you quit that quickly when you were starting to ride, then I was you just about to say, yeah. And I um, mean, think about how many years of training most of us go through. Like you said, you started riding around five or six. I start or four or five, whatever you said. I can't remember. I started riding around seven or eight. And I've been riding for well over a decade now and being 22. And so, I mean, like, that's how much time and effort I put into my education in riding. And rarely any of it was book learning. A lot of us get really used to just having somebody tell us what to do and relying on one or a couple professionals at maybe clinics or something to give you the information. But if you really take on that personal responsibility, you, like, inevitably will have a better relationship and understand understanding of how you interact with your horse. Um, because if you're just relying on somebody else, you're getting their relationship with your horse essentially, um, via you. <laughs> but yeah. if you take it upon yourself to do the research and learn and with people like, uh, me and Kane, we are putting out as much information as we can to help people along and make it easier for you. And so, I mean, it, it is difficult, but think about how much time you've put into your traditional riding. And if you put even, I mean, like, like I said, I think I've been training with positive reinforcement for two going on three years, and I know way more about riding, horse health, care, training, biomechanics, like everything. I know so much more in the past three years than I ever learned in those like 10 plus of me riding traditionally because I was relying on somebody else to teach me everything. They don't have time, especially when you've got like two lessons a week that are maybe an hour long. Um, you're probably not going to get a quality, well-rounded education. Whereas if you study it on your own um, through sources from that other people have taken the time to put out, um, there are so many out there that are more than willing to help you. They also offer online courses and coaching. And there's so much that uh, can help you if you're not a book learner. Like you were talking about the different types of learners with horses. People are the same way. That's why I make this podcast for people that are auditory learners. 
this is very easy for you. <laughs> and you're getting a lot of education here. <laughs> well, and just put a treat pouch on, you know, it, it very quickly becomes natural to reward often and quickly because guess what? Your horse loves it and will help teach you even if he isn't previously experienced with mm -hmm. it and tricks are fun but you know they they can get dangerous if you're not careful but then sometimes like with my thoroughbred uh luke daily things like grooming and tacking up works great for him and rewarding yeah. that kind of stuff um he was really cinchy even after he was finishing treatment for ulcers um and it helped him learn how to control reactions and overall just make things pleasant because he was still anticipating that pain. Right. Um, it also got him excited to come out of his stall because he was previously just like such a shut down horse. He wanted nothing to do with people around him. Um, it helps teach him to halter himself. All of my horses, if I walk in and I hold a halter out, they turn around and they dip their nose into the halter. Um, stuff like that. And you can even go as far as using it in lunging, like if your horse can lunge in a halter. Um, if you you can't you can use it to teach your horse to lunge in a halter and quietly <laughs> hand walk um especially like those horses in recovery like i mentioned you know they they can't ride so then do plus r instead yeah um they can walk calmly despite all that pent-up energy um it's helpful and it's good enrichment for your horse and it absolutely develops that you know bond that everyone wants it's it's a relationship with this companion yeah and outside of extraneous unmeasurable elements of bond by simple science you are associating yourself with a primary reinforcer i.e food so you become associated with food not necessarily in that you are a treat dispenser but that your horse experiences good emotions around you and starts to yeah. really enjoy your presence and then you end up with this animal that is brilliantly happy to see you and you cannot peel them off your side to save your life <laughs> <laughs> but the, isn't that the, the greatest part like yes. i have my my grow my cat growing up was always on my shoulders i would do chores around the house and she just sit on my shoulders my dog was in my lap more than he wasn't you know like yeah. so what that it's a thousand pound animal <laughs> i mean of course teach it your boundaries understand that it doesn't have boundaries or it has different boundaries mm -hmm. but it's fun it's this really awesome relationship and it's healthy and it's sweet and like your horse having a horse love you is just fantastic. Yeah, it's very akin to cats. You feel very chosen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, I think as far as if you want to switch, um, or if you aren't interested in switching mainly to positive reinforcement under saddle, at least starting to look at your horse in a different way that's not so adversarial as is often common. And I don't think people really realize how adversarial they view their horses until like me, like I stepped outside of that world. And then I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize I hated her so much. Like, I mean, every time I w interacted with her, I was like, Oh, she's doing this wrong. Oh, 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 she's trying to get the better of me. Oh, look, she th she thought she could outsmart me. And she didn't. It's like, well, it's like your relationship with your significant other, they shouldn't piss you off, you should want to be around each other. And then if you're not around each other, it shouldn't be toxic. Otherwise, you know, exactly. And I that was such a huge eye opener for me that it wasn't weird um, or that it was weird that my horse didn't want to come up to me. And she didn't necessarily run as she got older, but she definitely never came up to me or 
um, initiated contact. It was always me contacting her. And that's not a healthy human to human relationship either. If you're the only one putting in anything and trying to get the other person to love you, it's not really (laughs) a good relationship. And I mean, back to what you're saying about like how you can incorporate it in parts. Like, for instance, you reminded me of uh, a horse that we had that um, literally passed out in the cross ties. I've told the story on here a few times, but um, he would stand and the second I brought out the saddle, he would start closing his eyes, his knees would buckle, he would start swaying. And one day I had my saddle put on and just out of curiosity, because I was like, there's no way this horse is going to fall over. He will catch himself and then he'll wake up and he'll be fine. And this was before I started positive reinforcement, by the way. Um, and I was like, I was like, surely he'll catch himself. Nope, fell over on my very expensive brand new custom saddle. Oh my goodness. That was like, my like all of my (laughs) holiday presents for that year I was like oh my god and then I was like okay it's time to start thinking about this and um I actually he he didn't have ulcers or anything like that and it was simple as I needed to create a positive association with saddling and so I literally just counter conditioned it and just gave him treats for not reacting essentially and I will stress that this only works if the horse does not have a pain issue um because if it's pain, it's just going to be inherently a bad association. Um, but if the horse is healthy um, and the tack fits and is not causing pain in any other way, then um, you just simply pair positive reinforcement with the saddle and the quote-unquote aversive stimuli so that the horse starts to associate good things with it and expect that it predicts good things. And then I never had to use positive reinforcement with him again because he was a client horse and I didn't it wasn't, I wasn't supposed to, but I was like, this is the only way I think I can get him over it. And it was just as I started entering that world and started looking at the situation differently that I was like, oh, and I think that applies to riding as well. You know, if your horse is balking or spooking at something, if you just take a compassionate but inquisitive stance, um, you know, you're not making fun of the horse or calling him an idiot or being stupid or rude or pushy or all of the other awful labels that for some reason we love to <laughs> tack onto our beloved animals. Um, and you start looking at them as a a being that has feelings and thoughts and concerns. They're prey animals. They are hardwired to be afraid at baseline. And it is our job to help them overcome those fears and become confident animals that trust us. And I think the best way to do that is by, um, you know, helping pair the scary or things that they don't particularly want to do with things that they really like so that it's, you know, you can mitigate some of the discomfort. And um, that might be like incorporating scratches or um, really evaluating your tack and equipment. And if your horse is refusing to line up at the mounting block or something of that nature, then maybe just don't ride for that day. Just see what's up. And then the next day, if it happens again, call the vet. Just have him looked at and see what's going on, you know. Um, but yeah, there's just so many, so many things that you can change about your mindset, particularly. Um, I just find that the traditional world has such a, and I, I'm guilty of this as well, and it still happens frequently, and I have to catch myself and um, look at things differently. But you, there's this tendency to just tack on um, a personality defect and make it the horse's fault rather than. Um, you know, something else that's affecting the horse. Yeah. All righty, guys, that is the end of episode two. I'm sorry, cut you off right at the end there. Um, but episode, oh God, I don't even know what number we're on at this point, but the, the third part, <laughs> 
And this little positive reinforcement writing series will be out next Tuesday. And uh, in that segment, hopefully it'll be enough of a reminder that you won't feel like, you know, you've listened to these too far apart. Um, But essentially, we um, kind of go top to bottom on start to finish. How would you um, start or restart a horse with solely positive reinforcement? So um, I think that episode is going to be really cool. And then the episode after that is going to be answering your questions. So like I said at the beginning of this episode, if your brain isn't totally dead um, and you have not forgotten, um, just a little reminder that if you have any questions that have popped up throughout the past two episodes, feel free to shoot them to the Equitheory on uh, or Instagram and you can just DM me and I will um, see if we can incorporate those into part four of this series so this is part two then we'll have part three where we go start to finish and then part four we'll be answering all of your questions and kind of troubleshooting and then later on and if some of you guys ask questions that fit this category we'll just toss them into that episode me and Kane are going to do a talk about um problem horses and dealing with um you know different types of problem behaviors um and yeah, I think that that's pretty much about it. Again, if you would like to check out Kane's stuff, their website is MeyerEquine.com. And then you can find them on Instagram at Meyer, uh, Horsemanship. <laughs> I forgot the username for a second. Oh my God. Phone call. Um, you can check them out at Meyer Horsemanship uh, on Instagram and keep up with them. They post a lot of really awesome things. So um, yeah. With that, I want to thank you guys for listening and be sure to tune in next Tuesday and subscribe so you stay up to date. Up to date? I'm brain dead, frankly, and I'm a little sick. So hopefully we're not dying. <laughs> I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode and uh, you subscribe and keep up with us. And I um, post on the Equitheory Instagram and Facebook regularly, as well as Jet Equitheory. And if you need any help with resources and finding tools to do positive reinforcement, or um, you want to learn more about it, my website, jetequitheory.com, has everything you need to know that I have found so far, and it is always evolving. I'm always updating it, so um, be sure to check in there. And with that, I'm going to let you guys go, okay? I'm going to stop rambling, and we're going to roll the music. See you next Tuesday. (laughs) 